Our first passage is Acts chapter 1, commencing reading verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he has chosen. To them, he presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Now let's turn to chapter 11, verses 19 to 26. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Verse 22, the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exalted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas sent to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Verse th chapter 13, let's turn to chapter 13, verses 1 to 12. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a lifelong friend of Herod, the Tetra, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went out to Seleucia. And from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish prophet known as named Bar-Jesus. He was with a proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. 
But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Verse 11, And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word today. And thank you for this time as we gather now to read and pick up in the book of Acts uh, from chapter 13 onwards, that the, what we began last year. Uh, we ask, Father, that you'd bless us, help us by your spirit to grow in understanding this word. And especially today, as we think about the opposition in our world, as we think about the ways in which we, we hear or see or receive pushback for the gospel, uh, for living out our Christian faith, we ask, Father, today this passage would be a great comfort, a great comfort to know that the mission will continue ahead and your spirit is at work. So, Father, grow us in this, grow us in this confidence that we may continue to speak your gospel clearly for all to hear. And, Father, we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Sir Isaac Newton's third law of motion. If you exert a force on an object, that object will exert an equal force in the opposite direction. So if I push on this bookshelf, which has great books on sale all the time, <laughs> it is exerting a force backwards so that I cannot push it over. Now, I don't want to give you nightmares or flashbacks to high school physics. Um, but I want to point out that spiritual laws tend to follow this as well. See, wherever the gospel pushes, there will be opposition that will push back. Now, sometimes it feels like this opposition is powerful enough to stop the gospel. We know that there is opposition to gospel preaching and churches and Christians around the world. Some of it horribly unjust. When we read of pastors who are arrested in China for preaching the gospel, when we read of Christians executed for owning Bibles in North Korea, we are horrified at the injustice of that. But in our Western and supposedly more tolerant society built on Christian Judeo values, we're starting to see and hear things that make us want to dial back our Christian witness when we see a Christian CEO lose his job after only 24 hours because he was associated with an evangelical church, when we hear politicians say that evangelical beliefs are bigoted and unloving, when we overhear the chatter in the office or at uni among friends complaining about Christianity or slamming Christians, sometimes it feels like the opposition to the gospel is getting stronger and stronger. Will it get, ever get strong enough to prevent the gospel's reach to our friends and our family, to our 
politicians in power? Well, the answer to that question from our passage is a resounding no. We're going to see Paul and Barnabas set apart by the Spirit. The Spirit will then direct them on their mission, a mission to the Gentiles, to non-Jews. And we're going to see that no opposition can prevent the Spirit's work. Before we get into our passage, it would be good to take a step backwards and to see where we are. If you're relatively new with us, uh, if you joined us this year, welcome, big warm welcome to you. Uh, Over the coming weeks, we're going to be preaching through this book, the book of Acts, which is in the New Testament. Now, we're going to begin in chapter 13, uh, and the teaching staff uh, at Esley Church have uh, decided that we'll be exploring the book of Acts in three segments. Now, if you've joined us, it then may feel like you're joining or watching a movie trilogy and starting at movie number two. So it might help to have some background on what's happened so we can get a proper sense of what's going on in our passage today. Now, the book of Acts picks up where the Gospels about Jesus left off, right? Jesus has died, been raised uh, to life, and in the opening chapter of Acts, Jesus gives his final commission to the apostles. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So with that final commission at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus is taken up into heaven. A few days later, that promised spirit that he made mentions there is given to the disciples and their ministry takes off. In an amazing miracle, people from all around the world who are gathered in Jerusalem are now hearing the gospel spoken in their native languages. Peter gives a ripping sermon and the church grows from 120, which is about our size here, to 3,000 in one day. You imagine that? Where would they fit? A little bit in the patio out there, right? The ministry of the apostles continues on with more preaching accompanied by miracles of healings to confirm what they are preaching. And in this time, opposition from the Jews is increasing sharply. The bigger the church grows, the more opposition they face. By all the activity, but all the activity of all this happening is concentrated in Jerusalem in the first seven chapters. It's the first martyrdom of one of the, of the Christians and the heavy persecution afterwards that scatters believers out of Jerusalem to far lands. We're then introduced to a man named Saul, whose story begins as a zealous, highly energetic Jew, a Pharisee who seems to get a lot of pleasure out of persecuting the church and arresting Christians. On the road to Damascus to carry out that work, Saul is confronted by Jesus himself. And in chapter 9, you can read of his truly miraculous conversion. Uh, Saul traveled along. He is struck down by a brilliant light from heaven. Hearing the voice of Jesus, he is told that he must go to Damascus to meet with a Christian. Uh, But getting up, he realizes he is blind. The event shook Saul to the core. And eventually, a Christian named Ananias met with him heals his blindness, and tells Saul the gospel. Saul, the highly energetic persecutor of the church, converts, is baptized, grows as a disciple of Jesus, and immediately starts preaching that Jesus is the Savior and Messiah. Now, in all of that, the gospel hasn't made much traction outside of Jerusalem. 
Remember, Jesus said to his disciples that they would witness in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So far, however, the gospel movement has been fairly minimal. It's kind of stopped in Jerusalem. There's been a conversion. There's been some conversion of some non-Jews, but those have been super low-hanging fruit. Do you know what the phrase low-hanging fruit means? Like you get a fruit tree, really big fruit tree, right? And you see the fruit right at the top and you go, oh, that's crazy, I'm not going to climb up there. So what do you do? You pick out and you grab the low-hanging fruit and you go, see, I picked fruit today, right? It's easy work, right? Some of these non-Jewish converts in the book of Acts so far, low-hanging fruit, easy converts. Will the disciples actually journey beyond their lands to preach the gospel? Will the gospel remain contained physically? Will opposition restrict the gospel's boundaries? I wonder if those were the questions on the minds of the disciples as our passage begins. In chapter 13, verse 1, we find uh, ourselves in a city known as Antioch. You can see that there, up there in the map on the top, uh, top right. Uh, and you'll notice that Antioch is about 500 no- kilometers north of Jerusalem, which is down at the bottom there. Uh, so it's kind of still in Israel's backyard. Put it this way. Right? If, if Jesus gave the Great Commission in Brisbane, I don't think Gladstone would be considered the ends of the earth. It's about 500 kilometers away. Maybe for some of us it might be the ends of the earth. But I don't think Gladstone is like nearly the ends of the earth. But notice in verse 1, who is in attendance in this gathering. So have a look with me again at this group, very, very mixed group of people. So you've got prophets and teachers. You've got Barnabas. Remember, he was a Jewish convert whose original name was Joseph. Uh, but because he was such an encouragement, they gave him the nickname Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. What a brilliant nickname. Then you've got a man named Simeon, whose nickname is Niger. Niger in Latin means black. Now, there's some debate about whether this means that Simeon was a black man, but I don't see why he couldn't have been. And no, I don't think that's racist. I think it's just a nickname and probably helped to differentiate him from Simeon Peter, the apostle. There's a man named Lucius who is also a Gentile and may have also been black because Cyrene, where he's from, is in North Africa. In this mix, you also have a man named Menean, And we're told that he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, sort of like a foster brother. Herod the Tetrarch was the Herod who killed John the Baptist and oversaw the death of Jesus. You imagine if someone was in our church and we had someone who was Korean and he was the foster brother of Kim Jong-un. That's kind of what it would be like, right? So, and rounding out this amazing list is the Pharisee convert Saul. What an amazing mix of people. The gospel hasn't quite gone to the ends of the earth, but then called them. The voice was audible through the prophets and the teachers gathered there, and probably all of them together confirming the Spirit's words. And so after a bit of fasting and praying, the church lays hands on them in verse 3. Now, putting hands on Saul and Barnabas has some really nice Old Testament imagery behind it. Remember how in the Old Testament... Uh, When you offered an animal in sacrifice, you would lay your hands on the animal beforehand, right? So it's not like the church is sending Barnabas and Saul off to slaughter. Um, What's going on is that this is a way of identifying with the animal. When you put your hand on the animal for sacrifice, you said, this animal represents me. 
So in this corporate physical touch, we've got a wonderful symbol here, a way of saying, you are ours as we send you off, and we are with you. As you go, we go. We're a part of you. And with this, they're sent off. Spirit moves them down to the port city of Seleucia, where they catch a ferry across to the little island of Cyprus. And there they arrive at Salamis. I've given you the green arrow there to follow, so this is the journey that we're following. They arrive at Salamis, they start preaching the word of God and the gospel in the synagogue, and there's a little note at the end of verse 5 that they had John to assist them, that's referring to John Mark, the eventual writer of the gospel of Mark, and we'll meet him again in the coming weeks. Now, Salamis is on the east coast of Cyprus, as you can see, and once they've finished preaching there, they head to the west to Paphos. And there, we're introduced to two fascinating men. Read with me verse, from verse 6. They came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Uh, let me begin with Sergius Paulus. Right? He is the proconsul of Cyprus, sort of like the mayor of the region. He's the man in charge, and we're told that he's a man of intelligence. Now, I think that's important to point out there. Right? The Christian faith is simple enough that a child can understand and embrace the gospel, but it's also deep and profound enough to engage even the most intellectual among us. If you're here among us and you've been exploring the faith, let me encourage you to not swallow the myth that faith and belief are for simple people, right? a crutch for people who are not that, that, that intelligent. No, even intelligent people find the words of Jesus and God's word engaging and deep. Now, in all of Sergius's power and intelligence, he seems to have had enough of the world He's evidently heard of Jesus, and having heard that Barnabas and Saul are on his island, he invites them to share the word of God with him. He wants to hear it for himself. He wants to interrogate its meaning. But then we find out that in his ear is an advisor with ill intent, a man with a fascinating multi-layered description there in verse 6. The man is a magician. He's not an illusionist. I love doing little magic tricks for the kids. I'm not very good at it, so it worked better when they were much younger. All right? He's not that kind of magician. We're talking about the magic that was practiced by both pagans and Jewish people, sometimes with the goal of healing diseases or trying to bring physical blessings. Some magicians claim they could even foretell the future, uh, and they would use incantations and spells to try and manipulate the gods into action. We also find out then in verse 6 that he's a Jewish false prophet. Uh, this is a strange combination. Magician, false prophet, and Jew. Those are words that should never go together. In my notes as I was preparing this, my question on the side was, why hasn't he been stoned yet? Right? If you're a false prophet and a Jew, you were stoned to death. What's, how has he managed to get away with it? But this description already tells us that this man is really bad news. And then we find out his name. Now, in verse 8, we're told that his name is Elymas, but he seems to have given himself a nickname, Bar-Jesus. Literally means the son of Jesus or the son of salvation. But he is far from the son of salvation. 
In verse 8, we see that he wants to block and oppose Barnabas and Saul from meeting with Sergius. Now, take a moment to breathe for a second uh, and have a think. Uh, Let's play the scenario out in your own mind. You're given an evangelistic opportunity. The CEO at your workplace, your company, knows that you're a Christian and is actually curious, and he invites you out to lunch. And then he says to you, I want to know about the faith. Give me some understanding of who this Jesus is. What a ripper opportunity. But then one of the other managers who is into horoscopes and has a side business in crystals is in their ear to oppose you and say that you're not worth listening to. What would you say? How would you approach this conversation? Because what Paul does next is not meant for us to copy. (laughs) Not because it's wrong, but because it is a particular special moment in history, church history. The judgment miracle he calls down is a special moment in church history. Uh, See, the book of Acts, I don't think the book of Acts is meant to be a manual for missions, right? When Ben and Faith plant the church in Centenary in July, uh, they're not going to sit through the book of Acts going, okay, who do we need to heal this week over at uh, Mount Omni Shopping Center? Uh, who do we need, which official do we need to confront? Um, who do I need to blind? Oh, I might give that to the student minister to do that, right? <laughs> they're not going to be doing that, right? The book of Acts is not a missions manual. Uh, A judgment and miracle here is recorded not because this is the pattern for how we should do our evangelism, but to show us that God is breaking new ground. See, every time you see a miracle in the book of Acts, it's associated with the gospel pushing out. Miracles were given to the early church to help confirm the gospel that is being heard for the first time. I make no comment on whether miracles exist today or whether they ceased. I'm just merely observing that every time a miracle happens, it relates to the gospel breaking new ground in some new territory. So what happens here? A judgment and a miracle. Saul, who goes by the name of Paul, is filled with the Holy Spirit. The same spirit that spoke earlier to set them apart for the mission, the same spirit that pointed them in the direction of Cyprus, is now helping Paul speak in this moment. With spirit-filled words, Paul looks piercingly right at Elymas and lays a smackdown. Three shots are fired in quick succession. First shot, he looks at him, at this so-called son of Jesus, and he lifts the mask off for all to see. He is no son of Jesus. He is the son of the devil. He has no connection with Jesus at all, but his words and actions prove He is of the devil who opposes all Christians and opposes gospel preaching. Second shot, he calls Elymas the enemy of all righteousness. Third shot, he is full of deceit and villainy. So everything about Elymas' words and actions and his motives were all for wicked purposes, to push against righteousness, to fill with motives for himself, to deceive. And as a false prophet... He was making crooked the straight paths to the Lord. What he said may have sounded like good advice. 
with some connection to Jesus and God, but he did not offer salvation. He offered perversion. That is the mark of all false prophets and teachers. What they say may sound good. Every now and then they'll drop a nugget of truth. May sound like a smooth, straight path to God. But they are in fact pointing people in the wrong direction. They are pointing people down a road that will lead to destruction. So Paul speaks a judgment on Elymas. God is not with him. His hand is upon him. And we read earlier that the hands of the church were laid on Paul and Barnabas as a sign of saying, we are with you in strength in prayer, seeking your good. And here Paul says, the hand of God is on you, Elymas, but is the hand of his judgment and wrath. The judgment was not Paul's judgment. It was God's judgment. And the judgment was that he would be blinded for a time. The light of the sun would go dark for him. A mist and a darkness falls on him. Now, many of us uh, who were here last week, who actually were up at Mount Tambourine, saw this last week. During one of the talks in the morning, a fog rolled over the mountain to the point that you couldn't see beyond our campsite. You could barely see beyond the hall. It was as if our world had suddenly shrunk and we could not see beyond. Because of Elemas' wickedness, his world would suddenly shrink. He would not see beyond his nose, if at all. He would lose his position and power. And notice that the language of his blindness is actually very familiar. It echoes the experience of Paul. So from chapter 9, what happened to Paul, Saul? Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. Right? And you compare that to what's happening here to Elymas. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Right? There's an echo of language here, because the, the blindness in Paul was a grace of God to save him. But the blindness in Elymas was a judgment of God to punish him. But the language paralleled there is, Raising a question too, would Elemus repent while blind like Paul? We don't know. Whatever happens to Elemus, we don't know. But what we do know is that this miracle helps Sergius believe. But it's not the miracle alone that convinces Sergius. Read with me again the end of verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Notice at the end of verse 12, the miracle helps confirm the teaching of the Lord. Sergius wanted to hear the word of God. An intelligent man is not only given that, but he's also confronted by a miracle. The supposed powers of his magician advisor were brought to nothing by the power of spirit-filled disciples of Jesus. Jesus was the true power, and the teaching of his gospel confirmed that. Sergius Paulus went on to convert, genuinely convert. 
There, are two, there have been two inscriptions found in Cyprus related to Sergius. One speaks about his specific reign through the region. Another mentions his faith as a Christian. Here is the gospel reaching another Gentile, one from the upper strata of society, the 1%, if you would like. A man in a very high position of power heard the gospel and it radically changed his life. You know, last year when it was discovered that the new CEO of Essendon Football Club, Andrew Thorburn, was an evangelical Christian. Wow, shock horror in the media. The media whipped up a stupid frenzy, as to be expected. But probably the most disappointing comment in all of that was from the Premier of Victoria, the most powerful man in Victoria, Daniel Andrews, who claims to be a Catholic. He called out evangelical beliefs and the beliefs of Andrew Thorburn as bigoted and hateful. The most powerful man in Victoria said that evangelical beliefs, particularly around homosexuality and abortion, are bigoted and hateful. And I thought to myself, can anyone possibly reach Mr. Andrews with the gospel? I fell into the trap of thinking that some people are just, just seem so out of reach seem especially those who are in high positions of authority and wealth. But again and again through the book of Acts, we're reminded that nobody is beyond the reach of the gospel. Now, if you are a non-believer here, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, or you're not sure if you're really a follower of Jesus... Maybe you've been thinking for a while, investigating for a while. Maybe you're even new. I would, what I would love at this moment would be to just do a miracle and just perform it and go, there, this, see? This is true. But the key thing I want to invite you to do is, is I want to invite you to read the Bible. Because like Sergius, that is what will ultimately help you understand and receive the good news of our forgiveness and our reconciliation to God. It's in the Bible that we read these things. So I'm kind of glad I don't need to perform a miracle. Pressure's off me. Right? So let me invite you to read the Bible with us. What does this passage mean for the rest of us today? Remember that for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Wherever the gospel pushes into, there will be opposition that will push back. An opposition that thinks itself greater, stronger, able to stop the gospel's advance. But as we've seen, and we will continue to see through the book of Acts, the opposite is true. Opposition to the gospel will fail as it is destined to. It is destined to fail because the Holy Spirit is at work. The Holy Spirit, which desires all to know Jesus through the Word of God. That is His mission, and those who oppose it may have short-term success, but the victory will belong to God in the end. A victory, as we have seen today, that will be clear and decisive. And so if opposition to the gospel is going to fail, that should give us great encouragement and courage to keep speaking the gospel, 
to keep speaking it in the face of opposition. That's the temptation we feel as Christians, isn't it? As followers of Jesus, this is the temptation. Right? We see opposition and we see it mounting. Right? We see our videos here at Esley Church taken out of context, spliced together to promote politics of fear. We see Christians lose job opportunities because of their faith. We hear of Christians who get sued for not baking a wedding cake. Or we see comments, or we, see, we hear our friends speak offensively or insultingly against Christianity or Christians. The temptation is to shut up, to speak less. Or the temptation is to, to dial down our Christian witness. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt in the mounting opposition that you go... It's going to be easier for me if I just keep a bit more quiet. Just keep my head down. It feels like the opposition is pushing it. It feels like it's going to overcome. But there is a stronger force pushing back. God will not let his gospel stop in its tracks. Jesus will continue to grow his church. And the spirit will not let opposition rule. Opposition pushes back, but it will not overcome. It will lose. And so we can keep sharing the gospel with confidence. We can be assured that the spirit's work will not be stopped. And we can be comforted when we see opposition because it will not ultimately win. Sometimes that just needs a bit more patience. Can you think of that person in your life who you think, man, they're, they're just too far out of reach? Or can you think of the person in your life who is just so vehemently opposed to the gospel? As long as there is breath, there is hope. And we can be patient as we lovingly keep sharing the gospel and asking the Spirit to chip away at their hardness of heart. And as we do that, we rejoice. We can rejoice and remember that not only the gospel, that the gospel is unstoppable, we can rejoice that it was so unstoppable in this passage and in the book of Acts that it broke into Gentile territory. That the gospel was taken beyond one border and the next border and the next border until it reached through space and time to reach us here in 2023, where the gospel was preached in Singapore or Malaysia or where you're from, where the gospel is preached in little Brisbane on the other side of the world. We rejoice that Paul and Barnabas were set apart by the Spirit for this Gentile mission and praise God for we are here today because of the beginning of this story. Let me pray and give thanks for that. Heavenly Father, what great and wonderful news this passage has for us. We see the Spirit setting apart Paul and Barnabas, and we see them going to the ends, beginning to go to the ends of the earth to share your gospel, and we see 
your spirit push back and overcome opposition. Wow. Help us to believe that this will continue today. Help us to believe that you are wanting more to come into your kingdom, to behold your glory, to find satisfaction in you. Help us to believe that there are none beyond your reach, that we may speak confidently, clearly, and testify to the work of Jesus. Help us to believe this and to be confident to rejoice that the gospel will continue to be preached and we are the fruit of that and there will be much more fruit to come. So Father, do all of this great work for your glory, the glory of your Son, by the comfort and encouragement of your Spirit. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.